Good evening and welcome to Psychedelic Healing. I'm your host, Sonia Cato, nurse anesthesiologist and mental health advocate here tonight to discuss with you patents and more regarding psychedelics. My guest tonight, Graham Pachenik with Calix Law, has over a decade of experience obtaining, asserting, and defending some of the country's most valuable patents, representing numerous companies in the agricultural, chemical, pharmaceutical, biotech, and technology industries. He has worked on litigation teams challenging high-profile patents in court, including Monsanto's patents on GMO crops, Apple's patents on touchscreen devices, and others like Microsoft and Amgen. He has also worked on several landmark patent cases, both at trial and on appeal. Before focusing on work with cannabis and psychedelic ventures, he represented past clients like Pfizer, DuPont, AOL, Motorola, Google, and many more. His pro bono work experiences include nonprofit incorporation and asylum representation. He was part of a team that represented the governments of several foreign nations in a tax case before the U.S. Supreme Court. Wow, that's actually very impressive. An Oakland, California native and a longtime advocate of cannabis reform, he was involved in the campaign for Proposition 215 in 1996, and his experience in cultivation started from uh, 1997. In college, he chose his science majors after his first experiences with psychedelics inspired deep curiosity about the chemical and neural basis for changes in consciousness. A continued desire to push for the legality of cannabis and psychedelics drove the decision to enter law school with the dream of becoming an advocate for cognitive liberty. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. That's a, a very fulsome introduction. So I oh, appreciate yes. all that background. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Very, very full history. My actual, you know, I know in college, your first experience, my question always is, how did you get into psychedelics really? So we know in college that was, that's pretty much everyone's introduction. So how was that experience for you and how that transformed your uh, decision going into law? Yeah. Well, I, I guess lucky enough in a school of mostly science and engineering nerds, in a college, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with UC San Diego, but it's also broken down into separate colleges. I think now six. There are five when I was there. And the college I was in, I was even more focused on sort of pre-med and bioengineering. I was bioengineering pre-med when I started. Lucky enough that one of my friend's girlfriends was attending art school. So she she was our connection to um, <laughs> what was, I think, at, at UC San Diego, a pretty small psychedelic scene that I may not have run across. Um, but yeah, one one... Day, my sophomore year was given the opportunity to try mushrooms and, and did. And I suppose if I had to sort of look back to my kind of historical timeline, I could probably place where I am here today, uh, having this podcast with you very much um, based on that particular experience. And I was quite familiar with psychedelics. I mean, as you mentioned, I grew up in Oakland. I had pretty liberal parents. My father's an ordained Zen Buddhist and we had be here now. It's a coffee table book and a uh -huh. relatively, I think, long shelf of kind of psychedelic related books, you know, Huxley and Carlos Castaneda and things. My mom went to Berkeley in the 60s. And so, you know, I was not unfamiliar with psychedelics and I was kind of a stoner in high school, which probably also came across a little bit from my background, but I hadn't really had access to them and wasn't, I suppose, searching them out as much as Maybe in hindsight, I, I should have, although I think my sophomore <laughs> year in college was probably a good time to kind of make that connection because it felt right in terms of sort of maybe maturity for how I was prepared to 
integrate, I guess, that experience into my life. But, but yeah, I mean, it was one of, you know, not just in terms of historical kind of importance, but just the importance of it to the time for me, it was, you know, just the most dramatic thing, I think. And I was pretty used to, since I was a, you know, a cannabis smoker, understanding kind of slightly different changes of of consciousness. And, you know, I really appreciated them, you know, for listening to music or going out to music or hanging out with friends or going on hikes and things. And so, you know, the, the enormous change of consciousness I experienced really did just make me feel both like it just opened my eyes to something that I didn't even know was, was possible and maybe just really curious to, to learn more about it. And then to find other people who were you know, interested in exploring those states and, you know, who could, I guess, you know, participate in my own exploration of those. And so, yeah, it did fairly dramatically change both kind of my scholarly pursuits. So I, you know, I dropped my pre-med and bioengineering majors, um, although largely that was, I think, a product too of not being very happy in all the calculus classes I was in, but changed to cognitive <laughs> science where there were maybe a kind of small contingent of uh, psychonauts, I suppose one could say, in, in biochemistry, just because I was inspired very much by two books by Sasha Shulgin, which I came across after, you know, not that long, spending time trying to find out more about psychedelics of PCAL and TCAL. And, you know, partly uh, I thought it'd be interesting to learn more about the, the chemistry, which, you know, I felt it was useful to have some kind of classwork. And also, you know, if you're taking classes, you might as well take ones. Um, that are interesting and you think are helpful, but also having read those books, uh, you know, I didn't really have that many people who I looked up to in terms of like, what do I want to do with my life? I think part of the reason I was a bioengineering major is because there was like one person in my family who I maybe had met once who had invented the blood pressure cuff for infants and was like probably what everybody thought of in my family as like the most successful member of my family. And he, he had studied bioengineering. And so it was like, well, if you're smart and you can do science, and this is kind of like the mentor for you, but I hadn't thought much more about that as far as role models. But yeah, when I you know read Shulgin's books, you know, seeing that well, there's this whole kind of other way one can be creative with learning and you know kind of work on the world and work on oneself. That made me think, well, if I could do anything, being a kind of psychopharmacologist or psychedelic chemist was you know, kind of what I was inspiring to, naively, I suppose, to some degree. Mm -hmm. Although you know, maybe if I was 15 or 20 years later. Uh, it would have been easier. Uh, you know, my the professor at the time that I finally kind of worked up the courage to tell it to thought it was a fairly idiotic idea. I think probably not even exaggerating it too much. Yeah. Up until a few years. Yeah. A few years ago, it was pretty not, uh, not okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, so largely, I guess to kind of finish this, this train of thought off, you know, ended up in law school thinking maybe I do drug policy or, you know, cognitive liberty. I learned about a group that was doing some work writing about cognitive liberty and those things sounded like they were aligned at least with kind of staying in touch with psychedelics. But then, you know, also, I suppose, naively, once I arrived at law school and was paying my way in, in New York, realized, you know, that wasn't a way of making uh, enough to pay my law school loans off. Um, but having a science <laughs> major uh, patent law was what uh, all the firms were, you know, making, making fairly easy offers at the, at the time. The economy was doing well and, you know, started off by doing pharmaceutical patent law. And ended up here many, many years, I suppose, later, you know, much yeah. of that covered by your introduction. Yeah. Well, it's a roundabout way, but at least you got to your, to your ultimate goal is working with psychedelics and legalizing consciousness. 
right? Yeah, I think so. Although I, I don't think I ever could have expected before law school that I would do patent law in this field. But yeah, I mean, you know, PKL and TKL went from being sort of the first books that I was able to you know, really dive into to explore you know, psychedelics and psychedelic chemistry to now, you know, I have them as desk references and, and, and use them all the time to, you know, see what's already known about psychedelics from the patent law perspective. So it, I suppose is an interesting kind of way to come back full yeah. circle, at least to, to those. Yeah. Oh, no, that's, that's an amazing way. However you get there and it's, it's all a purpose and it's all the path that you take. You know, even me, I always get people, why, why are you doing psychedelics when you could be doing anesthesia anesthesia is oh my gosh it's so amazing and it's great and the money and all this but it's in a roundabout way that's how I got to psychedelics right that I work with ketamine I own a ketamine clinic now and I get to help so many people and I would have never known of this nor would I have been able to open the clinic had I not had the experience in anesthesia utilizing ketamine right so it's like that yeah. transition uh into that path and the same with you it's it's however we get there that's how we got there <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And actually, experiences. spending your time at the bench in chemistry lab was always really difficult for me, and, and sometimes didn't have maybe the enticements. You know, it could have if I really wanted to have a you know pursue a PhD in that. So, so maybe working as a psychedelic patent lawyer was the best fit for me after all. You know, I never oh exactly predicted that. exactly. I mean, for me, the idea of doing all the research and the reading and the writing that you do would be very traumatizing and horrible for me. But you love it; it's your calling and your passion and. I think that's where a lot of people, when they struggle with mental health that I treat is it's about finding your passion and your purpose. I mean, if you hated reading, mm -hmm. I mean, come on, <laughs> law yeah. school would not be a, a path to take, you know, or yeah. writing and all that. So we all have that purpose. So thank you for doing all that you're doing, but well, let's go. It is my pleasure. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. I'm very thankful for that because I would definitely not uh, like or enjoy or do to be in that realm whatsoever. <laughs> but getting into the patent law, you know, I'm so curious now because all the conferences that I'm going to, you see all these biotech companies that they're trying to develop these chemicals or pharmaceutical medications to replicate and patent. Mm -hmm something that already exists naturally how is that even possible yeah well some of them do and certainly many of the sort of first wave of psychedelic companies we're working with or are still working with some of the known compounds the way sometimes i explain to people how it's still possible to file patents on them is by taking the example of a pharmaceutical drug just any other type of pharmaceutical drug you know an ssri or you know something else that people are familiar with most pharmaceutical drugs will have dozens or maybe hundreds of patents filed and potentially granted on them. You know, some of the most well-known drugs may have over a hundred granted patents, which means it's not just a patent on the chemical compound itself, you know, the chemical structure mm -hmm. that can be granted, but it can be many, many other categories of things. And each of those categories may have different areas of aspects that can be patented. So, you know, besides just the drug itself, that structure, it can be, you know, different forms of that drug, probably the best known and kind of the first patents I knew of in this space. And many people have maybe heard about are like compasses on psilocybin, which of course aren't on psilocybin. The molecular structure itself is a chemical compound because that's something that's known and exists in nature. You know, people have been using it, producing it for, you know, many, many decades, hundreds of years. And certainly the mushroom for, you know, 
don't know when the first mushrooms produced psilocybin, but probably <laughs> probably thousands certainly prior, of years. Prior art, yeah. yeah, many many thousands of years. Yeah. Um, but they have patents on a crystalline solid form. Uh, you know, it's called a polymorph. So that's you know kind of one example. That's the sort of ultimate drug product if it's you know in a capsule or a tablet that one might take. But other so you can patent of- something like you can make it and change the form. To, you said mm-hmm. crystalline, so a different kind of chemical formation. Yeah, can, a crystalline okay. structure, not just a single psilocybin molecule, but you know billions or however many hundreds of billions of them are mm-hmm. in a uh, in a you know a crystalline the solid form you would take if you take a psilocybin tablet, you know, along with other formulation ingredients like the excipients, the you know inactive ingredients. Uh, but yeah, so different formulations like an IV formulation. Of psilocybin is something that's also been patented. Uh, subcutaneous formulation, so you know different ways of delivering it, okay. uh, different indications somebody may be diagnosed with that it could be useful for. You know different ways of treating those patients, identifying those patients, different kind of dosage forms and dosing regimens, and you know, all sorts of other things kind of around the drug itself. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can probably make an hour-long podcast that I'm sure would be very tedious and boring to just about everybody except for <laughs> right. people working in this space. Just listing yeah. all the different, you know, dozens of patents somebody can get yeah. on a drug. So it's not, you know, to right. make a long story short, it's not just a drug compound, but it's, you know, many other things that make up, mm-hmm. you know, an approved drug product and, and how it's used and what's on the label and, you know, in the field of psychedelics, but it's also in the, the REMS. So mm-hmm. this yeah. is a kind of a contentious area too, and, and one of a bit of controversy that's probably too much for this uh, podcast, but maybe people are familiar with the REMS itself, you know, risk evaluation mitigation strategies that the, you know, the, the program that lays out how a drug is administered. So when MDMA yeah. or psilocybin, you know, get approved as hopefully they will, it's not just the drug product itself, but it's the type of therapy and how the therapists are trained. The and, protocol and, and everything. Yeah, the protocol, all that, you know, goes into the REMS. So that those can be mm-hmm. things that potentially can be protected by patents too. Okay. Yeah. Cause I know that's kind of what's kind of limiting and hurting with the esketamine when I have certain clinics that are utilizing that is the REMS where it's like, mm. it's a one-to-one monitoring. You have to be in the office monitored for two full hours, even though for like the IV or intramuscular, somebody can be in and out of the office within 90 minutes, you know, but no, mm. they're required one-to-one monitoring for two full hours. Oh, wow. You know, but hey, if insurance is going to cover it, I always tell my patients, however you can afford the ketamine, that's the route that you need to take, though there is benefit for the racemic. I know, well, I guess my listeners out there, if you're familiar, there is the Janssen's esketamine that is the intranasal that is patented for treatment-resistant depression and which is different. What they did is they took the molecule that has like two different sides. You have a left hand and right handed mm-hmm. molecule, and they took one molecule, the left hand, and then patented it and put it in an intranasal form, and then insurance can cover it, right? Which is great for those that are insurance dependent. However, there is also, there is always a benefit to having both hands, right? Left hand and right hand in in its function. And that's what we know with cannabis. When they try to separate the specific cannabinoids separated, we know that combining it together is all of mm. it has its benefit, right? So ketamine IV and I intramuscular, and most ketamines are racemic if you have it in a clinic receiving IV. But if you do have insurance, you have the Janssen's esketamine intranasal patent. Sorry, I had to go on that tangent. To no, no, it's, it's a good tangent. Uh, and it's, it's good 
not to be myself the one who explains what enantiomers are because oh, right. <laughs> often I have to do that and I find myself sometimes tripped up. Although I might say it's not always the case necessarily that both enantiomers are beneficial. I think there's a really good counterexample to that, which is thalidomide, which I think a lot of people are familiar with because it caused um, birth defects and was I think, oh, never yes. approved in the US, but pulled off the market elsewhere. But actually, I think it's just one enantiomer of the two of thalidomide, and the other one is used successfully now for some other indications and is marketed again. But, but I think generally, maybe the enantiomers of any particular drug you know, may have to be researched to determine which is mm -hmm. better than the other. There's, I think both MindMed and Atai are looking to do similar to like what Jensen did with esketamine with R-MDMA and just get the R-MDMA enantiomer approved. Yeah. What I would like to see them develop is those psychedelics being a shorter half-life, hmm. you know, like just a shorter duration of action because it's going to be, once it's legalized, it's going to take for you know, in the office, you could be in the office, what, four, six, eight hours with a therapist, two to one, yeah. you know, two therapists or providers to one patient. That's a long day. It's a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But maybe it's still an open question whether the therapeutic benefit is greater if the length of time is greater. I mean, certainly Which is true, there's advantages yeah. in terms of therapeutic sort of cost, you know, by, right. by and minimizing. The process. Yeah. yeah. But, but maybe, uh, you know, 12 hour, or I mean, with Ibogaine, you know, a two day, three oh, day. That's right. Ibogaine is even, you know, has, you know, has an advantage. I don't know if you could do a short acting Ibogaine, but yeah, there's a lot of they're actually, questions. they're doing a lot of research and Dr. Deborah Mash actually is working on a non-psychedelic form of, hmm. you know, they obviously, you, I mean, having the psychedelic experience of Ibogaine is very therapeutic and healing and is definitely one a required, and I feel like if you're going to do the Ibogaine, but having a non a psychedelic ibogaine where you don't have the psychedelic effects for those that can't let's say travel and you know have that experience doing the oral non-psychedelic form would help with that addiction because we just need it as much as possible there's so many people we're losing mm. you know with that so that part i like you know because not everybody can have the psychedelic effect but our experience it is very important for those that can, you know, for the healing, because it's all about the mental health. I mean, I feel like every source of illness is mental health uh, related, yeah. um, the, the, the start of the addiction, you know? Yeah. Um, I think so I think, I think it is one of the most interesting sort of open questions though, in the field, the maybe most interesting to me, broadest open question around whether the, uh, the trip itself, you know, the subjective experience is mm -hmm. necessary for those effects or for the durable effects of taking a, a psychedelic versus a psychoplastogen or a non-hallucinogenic mm -hmm. psychedelic. Yeah, no, I will I'll always argue that the psychedelic benefits um, or the, you know, the subjective benefits and the experience mm. um, definitely does have a benefit uh, for that. Although I also have the experience with anesthesia that patients do actually feel better, you know, for a few days after surgery when they've received mm. ketamine. You know, I actually have a patient that um, I'll be starting next week that her first experience happened to be, and she didn't know it was under anesthesia. She had surgery and mm. all of a sudden for three days after surgery, her depression, her treatment, very treatment resistant depression was gone. And she was so amazed. She actually called them to see what she received. 
ketamine one was one of the medications that she received. So that's when she talked to her psychiatrist and, Hmm. you know, they recommended, yeah, let's, let's try it and work deeper in that, Hmm. you know, so it does have the chemical benefit. So when I talk to patients, it's like, there is the chemical benefit. Of course, we're going to have the anti-inflammatory effects. We're going to have the, the chemical rebalancing and all that. And even with the Ibogaine, when you're resetting the dopamine receptors and you're having all the chemical reset of the addiction to, to wake up without that craving, you know, how amazing would that, how many lives could we save? Right. However, that second part, the experiential benefit, that is where you can get subjectively into your subconscious mind and really do the deep work along with therapy and all that. So there are both benefits. I I definitely am all about uh, having the experiential experience for patients to really get to that, that space, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly am on your team there. I mean, my my entree to the entire space was because of my subjective experiences. So I'm certainly not quick yeah. to write them off. Yeah. Yeah. And what um what kind of work are you doing right now in are you working a lot more in the the cannabis space now or uh, what kind of uh, psychedelic patent patents are you working or fighting against right now? Yeah. Well, I do very little still in the cannabis space. Um mostly just because I I think the the patents in the psychedelic space tend to be kind of more mission critical for a lot of companies. So it's really fun to be able to work with a startup when they're building their business around uh, patents. But I mean, Calix Law, the firm that I started, was really for the purpose of working with cannabis companies and just has happened to kind of evolve into working now primarily with psychedelics. Most of the work we're doing now in psychedelics is around drug discovery, so novel compounds, because I think it's one of the areas that maybe has some of the least tensions. I mean, besides my kind of day job writing patent applications, I do have, I think, certainly a reputation for having challenged, at least kind of on on Twitter, maybe, the kind of allowance of patents, which I think probably shouldn't have been allowed. I've spend a lot of time thinking about and sometime talking about also just the role that patents play in the space overall and have, I think, some opinions on that that, you know, potentially could run counter to trying to, you know, file patents on just about everything, which I am fortunate that I'm able to work with companies who both are pursuing patents on inventions of you know, work that really is novel. So, you know, novel compounds, things that have you know, never before been seen. And also with companies who are trying really hard to see, you know, that tension between filing for patents and being able to attract investment and be able to build a successful business in a psychedelic space, but also do it in a way that's respectful of the fact that people who are now working in a psychedelic space and making money aren't the first to, you know, work with psychedelics and are, you know, we're really standing on the shoulders of you know, many generations of people who have used it in, you know, traditional medicine and indigenous medicine and just the underground and people that have been you know, kind of carrying the torch since, you know, Controlled Substances Act in the 70s and, um, you know, we're doing this work even in a kind of a scientific setting, you know, since, mm-hmm. since psychedelics kind of entered at least a kind of Western mainstream in terms of, yeah, our own, our own patents are, are mostly around psychedelic chemistry. So for companies that are looking to bring novel psychedelics through the FDA approval process, similar to, you know, the way MAPS is bringing MDMA and Compass and others are bringing psilocybin. I mean, other companies that are, you know, much further behind, you know, now in mostly preclinical testing, but looking at things to 
uh, solve some of the issues like you mentioned with you know drugs maybe being too long or maybe having too many like off-target effects in you know different receptors that might have uh, adverse effects in the people who take them or limit the types of people um, who are able to mm -hmm. take them. So that's that's primarily our work. Yeah, and, and some yeah. some work's still challenging. I think there's some some patents out there that could be potentially problematic for the the broader ecosystem. I mean, most of the work that I do as a patent lawyer is certainly is kind of in the, the medicalization sort of sphere of psychedelics. But you know, I think anybody who's familiar with this space, as I'm sure you know, you know very well, the um, kind of medicalization sphere is just one sort of small part of the, or at least one kind of part of the broader ecosystem where there's you know, people working towards decriminalization, which hopefully will happen soon, you know, legalization yeah. with, you know, different efforts, like in, you know, the sort of states of the horizon now are furthest along, like in Colorado and Oregon and, you know, other states, mm -hmm. hopefully not too far behind it. But, you know, patents play very different roles, I think, in those different areas. And, you know, patents might be helpful for attracting investment for people that want to bring new drugs through FDA, but for people who are just thinking about, like, operating a clinic and doing psilocybin services or want to do work with DMT or 5-MeO-DMT to them, potentially they're not looking to file IP and you know may mm -hmm. not, I think, properly have kind of novel IP to, you know, to, to protect as it is, but maybe concerned about the, uh, you know, the IP that others are filing, uh, especially the IP that others might be filing inappropriately trying to cover things that are not patentable if the patent laws were properly applied or the prior art was properly searchable, but maybe patentable because patent examiners don't always do a very good job. And so, yeah, I had, um, different. yeah, you said you had mentioned before on a previous conversation about they actually patented DFT vape pens. I mean, how do you even mm -hmm. patent that when it's something that's not even legal? Yeah. Well, I mean, so the question about legality actually is irrelevant to patent examiners. Mm -hmm. Basically anything is patentable as long as it's not a atomic weapon or a human clone, which are really like the, kind of the only exceptions to things that are patentable. I mean, there's some other kind of non-patentable subject matter, like you can't patent products of nature and abstract ideas. Like you know, Einstein couldn't have patented e equals MC squared, but those are maybe a little bit more specific kind of exceptions, but there is no exception for anything that's not legal. I mean, the, you know, the tens of thousands of cannabis related patents certainly can underscore that or the you know many thousands now certainly over a thousand of psychedelics related patents and how you mm. can patent it despite being known i think is the bigger question with dmt vape pens i mean this patent application was only filed in 2019 I and mean, when it was filed i think people probably you know maybe they knew of or had used dmt vape pens before then but also i mean it was known to the public too i mean there was a, a double blind article and an article and some other you know publications and many forum posts on reddit and elsewhere about how to make them and you know how to um, formulate them and the types of pens people were making and you know many of them had been uh, available and you know sold and there's records of that publicly too and so you know, these are things that count as what's called prior art there were things that were known publicly before the patent was filed um, but they weren't available to the patent examiner the way the patent examiner does a search so clearly they were available to the patent examiner because you know all they had to do was type in dmt vape pen to google um, right. But they didn't type in VMC vape pen to Google. They basically just did a search of the patent literature. So other patent applications and other you know, patents that have been granted, of which this was the first, so there weren't any other ones. And then a particular database just called Chemical Abstracts Plus. So like, is there any peer-reviewed literature from like a, you know, 
a scientific re- like reference that was relating to DMT vapens, which there weren't. So based on that, they thought, well, this must be an invention and, and granted it. And it covers not just DMT vape pens, but also 5-MeO DMT vape pens and 2CB vape pens. And it covers them very, very broadly. I mean, basically, you know, any any pen for, you know, inhalation by vaporization. So basically any, you know, any vape pen that includes any of those substances. I mean, there's no specifics around the type of formulation or the type of device. Um, and so, you know, anybody using, making, selling, importing, you know, anything else the patent office, the patent laws don't allow those pens potentially is a infringer and certainly people are doing that the you know not to go too far down the weeds here because sometimes i get a little excited about this in particular because i think it's just a uh, you know really yeah. good example of something where it's pretty clear that there's you know the prior art that should have prevented this from being granted and it's very clear because you can see the public you know it's made public what the examiner did so you can see they spent you know 7 minutes looking at these databases and didn't find anything you can see that they didn't search for DMT or vape pen or, or look on Google or anything. Have a look um, on Google. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I think the kind of negative implication for something like this would be, you know, if at some point in the future, um, you know, DMT is a natural substance. We already know that like states like Colorado are um, looking to, you know, reduce and will soon reduce the um, the penalties and potentially allow DMT to be used in you know, facilitated psychedelic services. Maybe in the future, California will allow it and others where maybe one yeah. could use DMT vape pens or 5-MeO DMT vape pens as part of a you know facilitated psychedelic service. But this person with this patent application or this now granted patent could prevent anybody from doing that or force him to pay license fees to him. And even though he you know didn't invent mm-hmm. the, the vape pen, and potentially, you know, what he could even do now, which I think is what's potentially most concerning, uh, at least for people who are, you know, operating kind of in the underground, is he could mm-hmm. you know, find people, figure out people who are uh, using these now or selling these now, and and th- threaten them to take them to court, to divulge right. their financial records, or force a judge to divulge their financial records, and you know, make life really difficult for people that are doing things that are still federally illegal, basically as blackmail to get them to you know pay. You know, the sort of average patent troll settlement might right. be, you know, $50,000, $30,000, but still, uh, you know, which is, you know, an enormous amount of money to somebody to pay to make a, you know, basically false uh, allegation that, you know, shouldn't be countenance go away, but, um, you know, the cost of hiring. So how does that, lawyers yeah, so is that something uh, that somebody else will have to hire somebody like you to fight it? Well, yeah, I mean, there's conversations going around now. I don't, unfortunately, don't have anything I can announce at present. But yeah, I mean, so it's quite expensive to challenge a patent after it's been granted. I'm um, just filing the petition itself is almost fifty thousand dollars. I mean, that's just the fees paid to the patent office, and and you know there wow. can be a lot of lawyers' work involved too. But it's much cheaper than defending, you know, a case in front of a, a district court. You know, it could be much cheaper. And, you know, all the individual people who potentially could get sued um, defending themselves or, you know, hiring lawyers themselves. Um, Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, these types of patent troll cases, as they're called, um, these kind of nuisance settlements that people are forced into are not that uncommon. I mean, some states like Washington and Oregon have passed laws preventing these types of cases because people found patents, which probably shouldn't have been granted on really basic things like barcode scanners and printers and 
different aspects of things that like kind of, you know, mom and pop stores might have and just sent hundreds or thousands even of cease and desist letters to people, um, you know, saying, wow. you know, you've, you've been using a barcode scanner in your, you know, convenience store. Um, and I have this patent on, um, you know, scanning groceries as a barcode scanner and can pay me $30,000 or, yeah, I'm going to take you to court, um, you know, oftentimes force, you know, force small businesses to, to pay that money. So these types of patent troll cases no. haven't yet appeared in psychedelics, but, you know, I think that's something mm -hmm. that, especially with state legal markets um, as a mature, um, or as they open and then mature, it's something to be cautious about. Mm. Well, I'm very thankful that I know somebody now in the business <laughs> in the future to reach out to for that. And I'm thankful, I'm thankful that you're here and that it exists because Otherwise, I mean, yeah, it, it, to me, it's funny that the patents, it's not the issue of that it's an illegal substance. Like, oh, it's just DMT. But it's the fact that it's, you know, it's a vape pen and it was already around. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. that And that's what worries me, too, about the other medications. But I guess I'm sure the pharmaceutical companies and all the bigger companies, they're going to actually make these compounds different, different formulation, actually be make it, you know, patentable. Um, yeah. For the future. Yeah, and I might be a little less concerned about some of the pharmaceutical companies just because they have, you know, teams of lawyers in much deeper pockets yeah. than so you know, they somebody know. who wants to start a psilocybin clinic or a 5-MeO DMT, mm -hmm. um, you know, clinic. Yeah, yeah. I don't think the clinics are going to be looking to form their own patents and all that, but be able to utilize the the medicine to help people. I, I would hate to, because that's the other thing too. Are you familiar with with maps? I was. I hear that they are going to have the license to distribute the MDMA once it becomes legalized. Mm. Um, so then it's going to be like $1,500 per pill for dose. Is that true? Like, um, me, Well, I mean, I, I can't speak to the pricing. Um, I mean, I imagine it's going to be expensive, although I imagine yeah. the cost of the MDMA like drug product is whatever it is, still a small portion of the overall MDMA assisted therapy, which is, right. I mean, I'm sure it'll be, uh, at some point, hopefully covered at least partially by insurance. But when it's not, I mean, I imagine mm -hmm. that cost is going to put it out of reach of you know, nearly everyone if it's yeah. $20,000 or $15,000 or $30,000. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you also raise a really good point. I mean, there's something which maybe you've heard about, but um, there's something called bifurcated scheduling. So, you know, MDMA now is on schedule one. And part of the reason it's on schedule one is because it has no medical use. Well, obviously, if it gets FDA approved, um, that's a pretty good evidence that it has medical use. Yeah. <laughs> indeed, the DEA has 90 days to, to down schedule it or deschedule it if it um, gets approved, um, which presumably then they will, putting it on schedule two or three, I imagine. Mm -hmm. um, but the only thing that gets uh, descheduled or down scheduled is MDMA, the specific drug product that MAPS has one approval for. Everybody's best guess, uh, you know, the, mm -hmm. the other the other drugs that have been scheduled, like THC and, and CBD with Epidiolex and GHB with Xyrem, and all of those have been descheduled or rescheduled, only the approved drug product, but have remained on Schedule 1 otherwise. So, you know, THC is still Schedule 1 drug and GHB is still Schedule 1 drug, I believe, but the drug products, I mean, Epidiolex and, um, uh, and the approved trinabinol THC or mm -hmm. not no longer schedule one. So I think the same thing would happen with psilocybin and MDMA. So all that just 
very long way of saying um, MDMA itself is not going to be uh, off schedule one, presumably, um, but only maps as MDMA. So it's not going to, it's not going to mean people can so start like... MDMA, you know, therapy clinics and, and use, uh, you know, another form of MDMA, not participating in, you know, the FDA, uh, you know, whatever the, whatever the REMS, go back to REMS. Mm. Um, so it'll be the specific maps and that's why. Okay. Cause I'm like, no. can't, you know, cause I'm sure you can get it in the underground for God dollars compared to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that'll probably. But the quality, you don't know what's inside. You don't, you never know. True. You do no harm. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a whole that's a whole other story. I'm sure you can have a whole podcast on uh, on the, oh, those, yes. those policy questions too. But yeah, I mean, even, even if it's not maps as MDMA, I, th I still think there should be certainly uh, ways to identify whether the MDMA people are getting is you know pure and is yeah. in fact MDMA. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of um, companies out there as well now that are doing testing, mm -hmm. right? Where they're testing the psilocybin just like they are with the cannabis. They're testing what you know, what is inside, what particles, if there is anything inside mm -hmm. of it. Right. Cause now you have, I mean, it's, it's actually dangerous. So I always recommend people to really be very, very careful. Cause now you can see it on Instagram. You can get so many different things, even just on Instagram, mm. you know, yeah. and, and you don't know what's inside. You just have to be very, very careful. Trust the source, especially yeah. now that it's becoming more mainstream. You just don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, the good thing about mushrooms is they're fairly easy to grow at home. Um, yes. But yeah, any kind of white powders, it's pretty difficult to know what it is. Yeah, yeah. And I've actually, even with uh, cannabis, there's been um, fentanyl being laced mm. in cannabis and mm. killing people. That's that's straight murder. Like why anybody would lace cannabis with that. It's very sad. So everyone has to be careful now in any yeah. type of psychedelic or any thing that's out there that's not regulated or tested but there are some safety testing kits so i'm actually wanting to interview somebody in that that area in mm. that realm on um you know on safety and how to test your meds before you're gonna utilize them to really know what's inside so that's actually the good part about you know with maps, you know, what's inside with now that cannabis, we have the medical and recreational, these dispensaries, they can, you can go safely and know that it's safe and it's not going to be laced with fentanyl, mm. right. As opposed to going to any drug dealer on the street, you can go and get real plant medicine safe and know exactly what's inside. Um, and that's what you'll know with the psilocybin in the future too. So and yeah. All the other yeah. And I'm sure there'll be people who are willing to pay more to be able to have that trust in the mm -hmm. psilocybin or MDMA yeah. that they're getting from yeah, yeah. FDA approved products. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Graham, for coming in and talking to me about patent law that, I mean, it seemed at first I was like, Hmm, how exciting can I make patent law? But actually it was a really amazing conversation. Hmm. I really enjoyed it so much. So, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad for that. Um, yeah, well, thank you for, for inviting me to share a little bit about patent law. Um, I think it was probably mostly the more interesting bit. So I'm, I'm glad we were able to cut here because everything else I'd have to say, I'm sure is, uh, on a steep <laughs> downhill curve right. <laughs> of descending, uh, on interest, but, um, but yeah, those are the highlights. Right. Oh no. Best highlights, perfect conversations, but I'm sure I will definitely re reach out to you more as uh, stuff comes in and I, I definitely see how that plays out and, and definitely uh, want to know about the different patents that you're working on or arguing for or against. So 
Yeah, we're well, always happy to always happy to talk more, and and I think there'll be lots of interesting things. I hope in the future, because yeah, it's still early days. Still, a lot of patents that are unpublished because they take a year and a half to publish. So we're you know, only seeing what's already a year and a half old, and there haven't been any real litigations yet. So that's when you know the, the sparks will really fly, and hopefully some some follow up that'll be as interesting to report on. Nice. Well, if I think of an invention to patent, I'll be giving you yeah, a Yeah, well, <laughs> send you my virtual business card. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Graham. And thank you, everyone out there for joining us for this week's dose of psychedelic healing. Have a beautiful night. <laughs>